Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am here with my colleague and friend, the very brilliant Dr. Doreen Saltiel. Let me give you her background. You know her. She's been on New Frontiers before. She's blogged on our site. She's created some of the most brilliant content we have. Uh, but let me just tell you about her first. She's practiced medicine for almost 40 years. She completed a cardiology fellowship and board certification and practiced interventional cardiology for more than 25 years. She currently practices functional medicine with an emphasis on hormone health in both men and women, as well as preventative cardiology. Dr. Saltiel completed advanced fellowship training in metabolic and nutritional medicine from MMI and is a diplomat of the American Board of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine. She also completed MMI's advanced certification in endocrinology and cardiovascular health. Uh, she's co-authored multiple peer-reviewed papers and recently joined the founder of Precision Analytical, Mark Newman, to present hormone testing research at the North American Menopause Society's annual meeting. Dr. Saltiel, welcome, welcome, welcome back to New Frontiers. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you, Kara. And please call me Doreen. Okay, I will. Um, I look forward to this deep dive. I love it when you decide that you're really going to tussle carefully with a subject and you blaze through all of the literature and you create an exquisite sort of work of scientific art that will guide both physicians and patients in making decisions around hormone therapy. Of course, hormone therapy is always fraught with lots of emotion, lots of fear, and you just cut through the emotion, you cut through the BS, you look at the science, you know, you pull it out, you write it really clearly. And so you did that with us for menopausal hormone therapy. And folks, we will link to Doreen's blog as well as her New Frontiers podcast. So you can get those, those two pieces. Uh, and now you've done it with testosterone therapy. Uh, and so I just want to thank you for that work. It's extremely helpful to physicians as well as patients, really providers as well as patients. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right. So you've turned your attention towards male hormones. And uh, I know I've just given a huge introduction, but tell me why you decided to, 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 to go in this direction, to apply that same brain, that same, you know, laser focus to testosterone hormone replacement, um, as you did with menopausal hormone replacement therapy. Well, in addition to a good percentage of my patients being male, over the years, I've been an expert witness, reviewing medical records, testifying, teaching, and mentoring. And I saw the same knowledge gap that I did yeah. with menopausal hormone therapy. And most people think treating males is easy, that they can just go to the corner to a testosterone clinic, get testosterone, and all the issues are resolved. That's not the case. Is it as complicated as females? No, but it is complicated. Why is that? Well, because you have to consider not only testosterone, you have to consider estradiol, you have to consider prostate health, you have to consider um, serum hormone binding globulin, and all of these factors, similar to women, it's like a symphony. They yeah. all have to be in harmony or else you increase your risk of not only 
uh, really osteopenia and osteoporosis, but then you'll increase your risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes if they're not all balanced. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to, we're going to go in that direction, but I want to just, I want to kind of move through actually the structure that you laid out for our conversation, just so we make sure we get every, you know, kind of tidbit and nuance of, of, of the work that you've done in this area. So let's just start with defining testosterone deficiency. And how do we test for that? Well, first of all, it's two-prong. It's symptoms and laboratory data. And really you have to look at the symptoms that are specific to testosterone deficiency. Similar to vasomotor symptoms in women, you wanna look at decreased libido. Uh, erectile dysfunction, which is sort of complicated, decreased muscle mass, increased fat mass, as opposed to the nonspecific symptoms of brain fog, fatigue. Look for those specific symptoms. And in essence, what, what a physician should do is download the Adam questionnaire. It's easily downloadable. Ask the patients to fill it out and you'll have a good sense of whether patients have symptoms of testosterone deficiency. In addition, look for anemia, an unexplained anemia. Think about decreased yeah. bone mineral density. If a guy tells you he's had a fracture. Right, right, right. Males shouldn't, you know, young males shouldn't have fractures. Right. Or even guys who are 50 shouldn't have fractures. And then testing. Serum will always be the gold standard. And interestingly, the guidelines are all over the place. Every yeah. society has a different definition, but you can be really comfortable with a total testosterone of less than 300 and a free testosterone of less than 100 or 65 to 100. Okay. And really, Morgenthaler, who everybody should read uh, the references in this blog, one of them by Morgenthaler, says 300 to 350 for total testosterone, less than, and a really a free testosterone of less than 65 to 100. And okay. really that 300 to 350 is because of serum hormone binding globulin. Okay. It's that wide variability. And right. you wanna test males on two separate mornings. Okay, okay. Uh, one is not enough, you know, even though- Are you altering their prep? I mean, maybe no, no intense exercise the day before or- I mean, are you doing anything prior to testing no, to prepare no, them? I basically they tell just... people, do your regular activities. Let's okay. not do anything artificial. Okay. Um, I test them on two separate mornings. And before I will initiate hormone therapy in anybody, they get a digital rectal exam. Mm -hmm. They, in addition to a, you know, a CBC, a CMP, serum hormone binding globulin, of course, yep. LH and FSH, estradiol, you want to use an yep. LCMSMS assay okay. because males fall at that lower end of the reference. So the rate. high sensitivity assay. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, I just want to assure people that we're going to gather what Doreen's kind of laying out here and making sure we'll make sure we have it in the show notes. We'll link to the blog. We'll get the Adam questionnaire linked, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to get those resources, but keep going. 
you want to check a prolactin because high prolactin will inhibit LH. And then if you inhibit LH, testosterone gets uh, inhibited. You want to th check thyroid. All of those things. And if somebody falls into that borderline zone, you should consider a testicular ultrasound. Because if testicular volume is less than 10 mils, boom, you have it. Because that's okay. not normal. So, you know, these other tests will help you if you fall into that border zone. But most guys, when their testosterone gets about 300, they have symptoms. Yeah. They have decreased libido. They will have erectile dysfunction. They will lose their morning erections. All of the things that, that are signals that they have hypogonadism. They'll lose muscle mass. They'll tell you that no matter how much strength training they do, they can't gain muscle. Let me just ask you out of curiosity, um, what if somebody is presenting with the clinical findings, but laboratory evidence is not compelling? Well, that's very interesting because then I would do something called CAG repeats. And what that looks at is androgen receptor sensitivity. And the higher the number of CAG repeats, the less sensitive the androgen receptor is. And that's both in men and women. Mm -hmm. And so that will give you a signal that even with normal testosterone levels, yep. they may need testosterone. And the other side of that is if you give somebody testosterone, they may need higher doses yep. because and a of higher that. serum level to improve their symptoms and clinical outcomes. Now, can you look at CAG repeats? I mean, can you measure those through a yeah, standard? Yeah, you can. There's a company called GeneDX, and they have uh, the ability to measure CAG repeats. How often do you need to do that dive, or do you are you sufficiently satisfied with standard lab evidence? If I have a guy who's symptomatic, yeah, and they their testosterone is normal, normal, mm -hmm. you know, 400, 450. Yeah and their free testosterone is normal, um, I will give them a trial of testosterone therapy if they have classic symptoms. Yeah. However, if they don't respond to the average doses, I then will go do CAG repeats because okay. it's like genomics. You know, they're expensive. Yeah. And then you documented in the medical record that they have these. It's in the literature that sure. these require higher doses. So you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's um, yeah. such that you're not viewed as giving testosterone to people with normal testosterone levels. Well, let me, all right, I've got one more question and then we'll get back on task. Like, is there a way to improve sensitivity? Is there a way to sort of functionally address this? No. no? Okay. No. Okay. So if they have it, they just need a, a, a super physiologic amount yes, to move through that. Okay. Uh, extremely helpful. This is great. Um, all right. So, so they've met your criteria um, for, or, or they meet the, the testosterone deficiency criteria 
what are we, what are you looking for to achieve uh, in serum levels? And how often do you monitor and, and what battery of testing? So you just gave us a pretty involved laboratory workup for baseline. And then how do you track it? Well, first I shoot for a, and it depends on the delivery, but in general, I shoot for a serum testosterone greater than 500, mm-hmm. clearly less than a thousand with the goal being greater than 500 to eight or 900. If somebody is in that range and they're not getting better, look at the HPA access, look at the gut, you know, don't, don't leave your clinical acumen at the door. Yeah. Don't forget about the rest of functional medicine. <laughs> good, good, good. Thank I you. Mean, I mean, because you can't do it. You yeah. know, you can give people all the hormones you want. And if you don't address the HPA access and the gut sure. and all the other things, they're not going to get better. They're just not going to get better. And then once I give somebody hormones, how do I follow them? Well, everybody gets a CBC at a month automatically because you're looking for erythrocytosis. Less so with gels and creams, more so with injections and pellets are somewhere in the middle. Um, I do a PSA in the beginning and then I check it at three months and at a minimum 12 months. That's what the guidelines say. A lot of times I'll do it three, six, and 12 the first year. The same thing with a, a digital rectal exam. I do it three at three months and I do it at 12 months. Unless somebody complains, then I'll do it at six months. And then after that, it's twice a year. Okay. Unless something changes. These labs and a DRE? Yeah. Twice a year. Twice a year. Um, and I will tell you that a lot of clinicians negate a digital rectal exam. Don't do it. Right. It's part of the workup. A woman gets a GYN exam and a mammogram or a thermogram, whatever your choice is. This is the same thing. The other thing I do is I do a breast exam on males. Good. It's um, It's really smart. Let me ask you this, like, we're going to get, we're going to, we're actually going to start to talk about risks. And so maybe we're, we'll, we'll get there or concerns, but for me, there's a pause in introducing um, testosterone into an individual who's just very clearly inflamed and kind of following the standard American life. They're sedentary, they're overweight, they're eating a profoundly pro-inflammatory diet. And that's because I know that inflammation can drive aromatase production and in, you know, an increased conversion of testosterone to estrogen. So are you, do you just outlined the functional medicine interventions, just the, the functional lens that you're using concurrently to the hormone replacement therapy. Might you start somebody with these underlying addressing these underlying imbalances before you introduce testosterone to them? Is that something that you think about or can you do it concurrently or do you not worry about it? I do it all the time first. Okay. Oh, you do. So you have a sort of a a runway where you're dialing them in functionally. Yeah. Cause I tell them if they're that inflamed Mm -hmm. and there's some literature and the, the theory is called the gelding theory that gut endotoxemia can suppress testicular production of testosterone. 
and I address the HPA axis, I address the gut, and then I and I make sure all their micronutrients are okay, and I do Good. entire functional medicine gamish before I commit somebody to lifelong testosterone. Okay. And, and what I try and explain to people is they didn't get this way overnight. Right. So give me six months, sometimes a year. Yeah. And if they do what I ask them to do, they'll get better and their testosterone level should come up. Sometimes That's right. it doesn't, it yep. doesn't come up to where it needs to be, but they'll definitely need less testosterone. And a percentage and a percentage first. may not need it at all. Correct. They'll need less and how they use it will be healthier and they're going to feel great doing, you know, moving through that, that six months of treatment. Um, and their mitochondria will be healthier. Their yeah. detoxification pathways will be healthier. You know, yeah. they'll, they will be healthier overall. How are you addressing HPA? What are you looking at? Are you using like the cortisol awakening, uh, awakening response? I mean, yeah. I use the, well, as you know, I use the Dutch test and everybody gets a baseline Dutch test for me, which I didn't talk about. Yeah. And tell me what you're looking at. I mean, you're looking at car, I'm sure, but talk to me about how you're using the baseline Dutch test with a couple of, a couple of ways. Okay. Um, one, I look at cortisol. I look at the car. I look at cortisol metabolites. I look at total production. Um, and then I look at estrogen metabolism. Okay. Because a hormone's ultimate effect is really dependent on how it's metabolized. And the whole issue with prostate cancer and estradiol, which is really complicated, is that if a guy's not healthy and a lot of his testosterone goes to estradiol systemically, you can assume that some of it is going infraprostatically to estradiol, and then they have a barren aromatase activity in the prostate. That's where the super physiologic testosterone levels come, and you can increase your risk of prostate cancer. And even an inflamed individual who you give testosterone to, if they're at risk for prostate cancer, they may abnormally increase aromatase uh, and alter that testosterone to estradiol ratio. So part of that six months runway is this Dutch is correcting the imbalances on the Dutch. Correct. And making sure they're, they're detoxifying their androgens and estrogens. Correct. Awesome. Good. Makes total sense. And then, yeah, then you're introducing it, it, you know, just so much, so much more, uh, smartly and safely. Um, well, what about the idea? You did such an elegant dive into the literature on prostate cancer. And I know we're here, we're talking about how to make it safer, but you know, does it, does testosterone replacement therapy increase the risk of prostate cancer in general? I mean, what's no. the. No, so, you know, very interesting. You know, as I wrote in the blog, since that Huggins and uh, Hodges landmark paper that documented if you decrease testosterone into castrate levels in men with prostate cancer, prostate cancer regresses. And if you give men with prostate cancer testosterone, prostate cancer grows. That got extrapolated to 
all men who get testosterone have an increased risk of prostate cancer. That was negated in the literature. I mean, there are some very good articles and studies that basically have documented that testosterone does not increase prostate cancer. And in fact, testosterone has a saturation point in the prostate. And it's about 250 nanograms per deciliter. Below that level, PSA will increase. Above that level, it hardly increases at all. So that's that threshold saturation point where the prostate is saturated. The issue with prostate cancer and testosterone, it's the conversion to estradiol. Got it's it. the estradiol issue that more than anything will drive prostate cancer in an inflammatory environment. Right. Are you using an aromatase inhibitor then in some individuals? You know, I really try to keep their estradiol in that 30 to 35 range. And I really try to keep testosterone in around that six to 900. And then I don't have to use an aromatase inhibitor. Okay. I'm sure the lifestyle interventions, if they're adhering to them, are, you know, they're natural aromatase inhibitors. Yes. Yes. Okay. Awesome. This is really helpful. Um, so testosterone replacement in an individual with prostate cancer would be contraindicated. Yes. For the obvious reasons. Yes. But. Yes. Okay. Um, we, I, just out of curiosity, like, I mean, where are we now with using it? I mean, have, I, 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 well, on, on one arm, I think it's been overprescribed. I mean, it's just, was, it, it hit the, you know, it hit television, it hit commercials, you know, low T and it just sort of became this aggressive sales, sales pitch, which I don't know that has been wildly helpful. I don't know. You, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. Um, I guess the question would be, since we've gone into prescribing it so much, have, do, I don't know that we've seen an uptick in prostate cancer as it's been used more. Um, no. no, there's not. Yeah, that's, and that's interesting because most physicians aren't thinking through a functional lens. So that's, you know, kind of an interesting, so, so they're, they're giving it to plenty of really inflamed guys and we're not seeing an increase. Correct. Correct. The really interesting thing to me was that I find this discussion similar to the estradiol and breast cancer discussion. I think it's yeah. a real knowledge gap. And I think testosterone was done a disservice by all these corner T clinics that just give testosterone or people who prescribe super physiologic testosterone because more is better when actually it's not. Right. So it hasn't, it's been over, it's just, it, it hit the media. It's, it's been, I think it's probably been overprescribed. And as you say, super physiologic amounts and not, you know, in a pro-inflammatory milieu, but even with this misuse of it, we're not seeing uptick in prostate cancer, which I think sure. is, that's important. That's extraordinarily important. Like we need to let go of this fear. Yes. Uh, that's great. That's great. Can, and yeah, folks, again, the, the, um, discussion that Doreen uh, had with me on New Frontiers on estradiol. We'll make sure we link to it. And again, do check out her blog. It's, it's a blog that I refer other physicians and, and providers as well as my patients to download to take to their providers because it's so well-referenced. 
um, just like the testosterone blog and, 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 and what we're talking about here today. All right, so then let's talk about cardiovascular disease. I mean, cardiovascular disease, you know, uptick in, in various studies have, 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 has, have prompted the halting of those studies. I mean, there's been, a again, this terror-based association with heart disease and testosterone. So walk us through your look on the literature in that. Prior to 2013, there was a lot of data, most of it clinical trials, observational studies, that documented testosterone in men with low testosterone decreased cardiovascular events and cardiovascular mortality. However, two studies came out, the Weigand study and the Finkel study, which were both bad studies, which we can talk about. Gay got a ton of publicity. The FDA said, okay, we need to look into this. Found two other studies, one was a meta-analysis and one was a randomized controlled trial. And based on those four studies, even though the FDA, when they looked at all of these studies individually said, eh, not really good data, mandated a black box warning on huh. all testosterone prescriptions. That really sent the community or the hormone community into a tailspin and basically said, we shouldn't prescribe testosterone. And the four studies have been critiqued by experts all over the world saying these four studies are meaningless, which is how the Traverse trial, which is a large randomized control trial, which is ongoing, uh, hasn't been stopped. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine is a principal investigator, and he says the data looks good. It should The data should come out in the next few years, and there's no evidence that it increases adverse cardiovascular events. So that's the good news. Um, but yeah. these four studies, starting with the Bessaria trial, which was, which was the TOM trial, which was not a cardiovascular study. Mm. It it looked at muscle strength in frail old men, and it was stopped early because of presumed cardiovascular events and how they, most of them were palpitations and lower extremity edema. That, those were the cardiovascular events. However, there were four real cardiovascular events in men who received testosterone. When they looked at the data further, all of these men had total testosterone levels greater than a thousand, and they all were given supraphysiologic doses. So that's the first study. The Weigand study was the 2013 study where they used a statistical analysis that had never been validated. Hmm. And they included 10% of females in the data. Yeah, there were 10% of them were women. And then the analysis was incorrect in that where they said the men who received testosterone had a higher incidence of cardiovascular events. Actually, it was a lower incidence. Uh, It was about 10.1% in the men who received testosterone, and it was 21% in the men who didn't receive testosterone. And was that a statistically significant difference? Yes. So they just misreported it. Yeah. And they tried to correct it. They tried to correct it. And everyone said, this study needs to be pulled from the literature. Of course. Nobody pulled it. It still exists. Wow. And then we get to the Finkel study, 
which also had flawed data analysis, and they compared pre-treatment testosterone with post-treatment MI rates, which makes no sense. They're measuring two different things. They never attempted to validate the events. They just looked at ICD at that time, nine codes. Mm -hmm. There was no control group, and they never looked at key data points like testosterone levels. And then the last was, this is actually the most mind-boggling, was a meta-analysis where 35% of the studies were two. One was that Tom study mm-hmm. with the superphysiologic testosterone. And the other was the Copenhagen trial where they gave men with liver cirrhosis, oral methyl testosterone, 600 milligrams. And their testosterone levels reached as high as 21,000. Wow, because they had cirrhosis. Right. And when they pulled those two studies out of the meta-analysis, there was no difference between cardiovascular event rates and the T-treated and non-treated men. And since that time, there have been a ton of studies documenting that indeed it decreases cardiovascular events, it decreases mortality, and the longer you treat guys, the less the event rate. But none of them are randomized controlled trials. And you know as well as I do, Kara, in in our traditional world, that's all they looked at. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, the Traverse trial is basically and everybody's waiting. But the reality is, is that you're comfortable using it. Oh, the the evidence that you have. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. And the the decision-making studies are... Horrible. Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. It's kind of like the women's the women's health initiative. And yeah. There's been a lot of stuff, there's been a lot of data, and it's it's in the blog itself, you know, the citations. Yes. Really talking about uh how the studies were terrible. Right. Those four studies, and nobody thinks how did you like where did you read that the FDA said these are garbage, but we're gonna make our we're going to black box it anyway oh, i mean how Morgan did you dig Toller, that up the morgenthaler paper on yeah. uh, cardiovascular disease since the fda mandate and then mari Miner's paper uh on it you know they, they could, all yeah they all wrote about it oh my god yeah you know thank you for for doing this work for us it's just incredibly helpful yes um so what do I want to say? Like we've, I, I've, we've covered a lot and yeah, very useful, useful, useful for all of us. Uh, what else? Anything the else? Last that thing, you, it, yeah. The last thing is delivery methods mm-hmm. and the risk of erythrocytosis. Good. Okay, good. Because yeah. injections cause the highest incidence of erythrocytosis. Gels and creams cause the least. Pellets are somewhere in the middle. And if you have a male patient whose hematocrit is 48 or greater, don't give them testosterone until you work them up, which includes a sleep study. Don't yeah. just send them to donate blood. Right, right. That's not how you work people up. Yeah. What you want to do if you're using injections, uh, you want to give them sub-Q and people, of course, start too high. Start with 25 or 30 milligrams twice a week. 
check before the next dose about, you know, two or three weeks later. And if their testosterone is less than 40, 400, increase the dose a little. If it's greater than 700, decrease the dose a little. Because you want to keep them in that greater than 500 to about eight or 900. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're using, you know, standard gels like androgel, start at 50 milligrams a day. If you're using creams, put the cream in an atrevis base in a male. That base absorbs better through a guy's thicker skin. Start at 50 milligrams, but be aware the one study that compared a gel with a cream, the cream required twice the dose. Hmm. So you may need a higher dose of a cream than you will a gel, similar to women if you compound creams. Start at 0.5 with a woman and then work your way up based on serum levels. Um, and just a word about pellets and oral, the new oral, Jatenzo uh, or T-Lando. Mm -hmm. Pellets get a bad rap because people give too much. It's not the pellet, it's the pelleter. And for every 75 nanograms, you want to increase testosterone. So say you're at 300 and you want to go to 900. You know, give them 600 milligrams. They don't need as 800 milligrams. They don't need 1,000 milligrams of pellets. 750 is the average dose. And when you look at the pharmacokinetic studies, it's based really on BMI. Guys who have a BMI of less than, you know, 25, they mm -hmm. do best with about, you know, 750 milligrams. Guys who have a higher BMI, they may need a little more, but guess what? I still start at 750. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the pellets are gone. The pharmacokinetics are, they're gone in 100 to 120 days. So I test them at the end of three months, and if their levels are still good, I gave them too much the first time. Okay. I'll wait a little longer, I'll lower the dose. If they're back at baseline after three months, then I gave them the right dose. Okay. And the new Jatenzo or T-Lando, the oral uh, testosterone undecanate, be careful with older males. It tends to raise blood pressure. And the concern is if you raise blood pressure, you may increase cardiovascular events. Mm. Um, and so it may cause more lower extremity edema. And what I have found using them, guys forget to take them. They're twice a day. Oh, are they really? Oh yeah, that's yes. really They're all twice a day. So why are they going oral just out of curiosity? Partially because God, they're trying to get away from injections and the ability with erythrocytosis. So they're trying to do an oral uh, similar. Uh, they think guys will do better. And guy, a lot of guys don't want to rub gels and creams on themselves either. Yeah. So a lot of guys would rather have pellets and some guys don't want pellets. So or some docs are not comfortable using pellets. And that's fine. And so this is another alternative for guys. And actually the T-Lando study, the T-Lando was, there was a study recently published uh, by Mohi Kara and some of his other colleagues that documented that 225 milligrams twice a day doesn't even need regular monitoring. 
you know, testosterone levels stayed about 750, 800. Wow. I wouldn't do that. I'd still monitor guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you got to monitor prolactin because it can look, it can raise prolactin levels. There's a lot of monitoring you have to do with the oral medicine. So, um, you know, it may not be the best thing for everybody. Right. Um, it's kind of like, I don't use a lot of digoxin. Mm-hmm. The reason the therapeutic window so narrow yeah. and you got it, you know, testing doesn't matter, but it makes me nervous. And sure. so I'd rather worry less. And yeah. so for me, I get guys to do gels or creams or in some guys' pellets. Okay. Um, you know, I don't use a lot of injections because guys think more is better. And, you know, I can't control what they're doing. Okay. Okay, good. I was going to ask you what you're using primarily. Why a cream versus a gel out of curiosity? Oh, I typically use a gel. You use a gel. Yeah. I typically start with uh, the standard androgel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's bioidentical mm-hmm. in case a guy says, I don't like the gel. I don't like the alcohol. Then I may go to a cream. The problem with a cream is you got to put chrysin in the cream sometimes, mm-hmm. and it makes the skin yellow. It makes clothes yellow. Um, so I typically use a gel or why do you need chrysin in it? Out of curiosity. Well, if just in general, if their estradiol goes up, it's the easiest way to, to turn it down. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. That's cool. Okay. But it makes okay. people's clothes yellow, yeah. which is pretty annoying. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm sure it is. Um, well, th- I, this has just been extremely useful. Ja, let me ask you, like for, as far as these, these various forms, are you, so, I mean, you would consider oral in a, in a guy who's otherwise healthy and liver function is fine. You're not worried about high blood pressure. If that's the only way he's going to use it like you I mean all these forms are fair game for you as long as they're used in the correct context yeah I actually start with uh gels even in guys who I'm going to ultimately pellet I've been pelleting for 14 years yeah Um, and I do that so I can see number one how they detoxify their hormones Right. You know, it's easier to stop a gel or back off on a gel than it is to me go fishing pellets Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. hundred uh, percent. That makes I, so much sense. And then you can yes. get your dose for pellets based on Correct. how they respond, what you do with the gel. Correct. Correct. I make sure their detoxification pathways are optimized. I make, you know, because I may optimize them before, but you know, as well as I do, you give somebody a hormone, things change. Yeah. And so I do, I keep things simple. I like, I don't like to put myself or the patient in a predicament where I can't, where I have no out. Yeah. You know, I always learned in cardiology when I taught fellows, it's easy to get in trouble. Very easy. You have to know how to get yourself out of trouble. And pellets are a hard way to get out of trouble. Right. So, so I, wanna, yeah. yes. You I want to make sure you gels. go in there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, even in a guy who begs me, start with gels and then we convert. Yeah. Makes absolute sense. Okay. This has been fabulously useful. And then, you know, again, I do metabolomics, just so you know, I do metabolomics after like four months. Oh, thank you. I was going to ask you about that. And and erythrocytosis, like what, what's when are you, you said you're doing a CBC every three months, three, six, six and 12 and 12. Okay. 
And if their crit goes up, I stop it until I, most of the time, if I think somebody is sleep apnea, I woke them up in advance. Yep. Um, but if I didn't think so, when their crit goes up, I stop it, I work them up, and then I lower the dose when everything is worked up and I have an answer. Do you look at iron in some folks? Yeah. Okay, of course. Yeah. Okay. Of course, I look at iron. I do all of that in the beginning. Yep. Um, and, you know, the other thing is, you know, after I check metabolomics initially and then, or the Dutch test, you know, after four months, I do it twice a year. Okay. Oh, you'll do a Dutch. So when you say metabolomic, you're referring to the Dutch? Dutch, correct. Okay. And then you'll do that twice, twice every six months? Yeah. Okay. Unless something right. changes, and then I have to do it more. And if you're curious about detoxing the, I'm actually saying this to the audience that, you know, if you're wondering how she's actually working with the findings on the Dutch, i.e. higher estrogen metabolites and so forth, you're probably using the interventions that they list. I mean, the, the, it's a really nice panel in that treatment and dosing, et cetera, are there. Like, or, but do you want to just say one of some of your favorite um, supplements that you yeah. might use for, yeah. Sure. So first thing I, when I'm looking at estrogen metabolism, I have to make sure they have adequate methylation activity. And as you know, it doesn't measure methylation. This is not a DNA test that's measuring actual CPG islands and methylation. It's right. really looking at the ratio of 2-hydroxy to 2-methoxy. Yep. And before I start addressing phase one metabolomic, a phase one detoxification heavily, I make sure at the same time they have adequate methylation activity because those intermediates, whether it's 4-hydroxy or 2-hydroxy, can become toxic intermediaries if they don't have a pop-off valve, if yeah. you don't have adequate glutathione, if you don't have adequate methylation. So that's the first thing I look at. And then to increase activity down that... Um, 2-hydroxy, you can give I3C, you can give DIM, in addition to diet, right? Yeah. Cruciferous vegetables, uh, not that that's going to make this huge dent, but you want to eat an anti-inflammatory diet yeah. because inflammation will push things down that 1B14-hydroxy pathway. It will increase aromatase activity, and you really don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And well, as far as methylation, you can talk as well, probably better than I can about, so, uh, about um, trimethylglycine and methylated B vitamins, but making sure you're not over-methylating people because of the consequences, and some of them are cardiovascular com consequences of yeah. over-methylating. Right, right. So again, we can lean on diet. Of course, anybody listening probably knows I wrote a book about that. Right. I was going <laughs> to so let you talk about that. <laughs> so there's, you can get top tips from the Younger You book on how to work with tweaking methylation through diet and lifestyle. But you're doing, you're, you're doing a lot of that. And anyway, folks, we'll link to a, we'll link to a Dutch, a Dutch test as well, so that you can take a look at that uh, and what, what, what Doreen's talking about here, in case you're not familiar with it already. Uh, so we're, this brings us to the end. And I just want to say thank you. I love it. I love these deep dives that you do. I look forward to your next one and, and, and talking, to, talking about wherever you, uh, you go. It's so helpful to the community. So helpful. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And everybody read Kara's book because, <laughs> no, in all honesty, I read it 
It gave me a lot of good information, which I use on my patients all the time. Uh -huh. um, lean on the experts, people. And Kara is definitely an expert. And so not only a friend and a colleague, but a, a well-written, well-versed expert in that field. So I leaned on her. Thank you so much, Doreen. All right. Well, big virtual hug to you. And may our paths cross in real life soon. <laughs> soon. I'll talk to you soon. Okay.